Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Russell Howard to talk all about his current US tour, as well as his upcoming launch of his podcast, Wonderbox. If you're interested in checking out his tour, you can check out his website, www.russell.howard.co.uk. And I actually wanted to, to start by talking just a little bit about the way that you kind of move in the world and see the world as a comedian, because I find it quite fascinating to hear you talk about that observational quality. Because, you know, for me, I can't watch a film and TV show the same way without kind of sitting there and noticing little details and little intricacies. But for you with a comedian, there's kind of no off button for that. It's every single thing that you do in life. And I've even heard you say the way that you'll like see something. Sometimes you just start like mumbling out loud as you're kind of processing the idea of something. And yeah. so I was just interested in kind of like how you navigate kind of just moving through everyday occurrences when you've got this constant tick going and, and looking for material. Yeah, it's weird. Well, I I think there'd be a really great podcast if you were to interview comedians' partners because those poor people, <laughs> they are privy to just everything that doesn't make it. They get to see the stuff that makes it and the stuff that will never, ever get to the stage. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty constant, but it's, I don't know, it, it's just I've always been like that. And I think comedy is so visual that you'll see something and the routine is there instantly in your head and then your job as a comedian is to find the words that convey that visual to the future audiences do you know what i mean so you kind of you see something and it really like i saw something yesterday which was it was a there was a bin in la like a trash can and it said be a hero and there was a picture of a man putting rubbish into a bin and you're like like how low is the bar <laughs> that that now and in my head I was imagining like Mariah Carey singing as you kind of put um, a can into a bin so I kind of made a little note on my phone that said Mariah Carey bin and now my job is to try and if it comes up in a show turn that into a 30 second thing do you know what I mean it's sort of so it's kind of like this it's it's almost I don't know this sort of like internal it's probably the same with you when you're watching a film, you sort of notice something and it just, it's a really nice itch on your brain. And then you have to talk to people about it. That's kind of all comedy is. It's just, it's you noticing a thing, whether it's something you see on the news or a feeling you have, or somebody saying something funny and just experiencing that and then going, Oh, I'll remember that and give it to others. That's kind of what it is, you know? I like what you're bringing up there as well in terms of comedy being very visual because, you know, often on paper we think about the words that are strung together for comedy, but it's those words are creating visual elements. And even just in the way that you're telling that story, you're you're kind of already creating mannerisms and movement within your body. And then there's the elevated level of how do you do that physical side of the visual element of comedy on stage? Um, and mm. so given that it is such a visual medium, both through words and the physicality of a performance, how do you kind of finesse and find that side of it for yourself? I, movement came quite naturally to me. Like it when I first started doing stand-up, I kind of knew how to tell the stuff, but the stuff I was telling wasn't particularly interesting. So I was 18 and and the craft of writing came later. And I, I think bro that broadly splits audience um comedians that you get people who are very good joke writers, but they can't perform. And you have the people that can perform, but they can't write jokes. So, the, the, yeah, that, I never really struggled with that. I was always pretty good at being able to be on stage and kind of talk and um, kind of 
interest people. I just had nothing to say. And then I had to really work at just being a bit more um, inventive or, I don't know, joke writing didn't come naturally to me. I was funny, but I couldn't always turn it into kind of routines. Do you know what I mean? So particularly when I was younger, I would just kind of improvise and sort of chat with crowds. And eventually I got a bit bored with that and just started trying to write stuff for myself. And and what was that journey for you in terms of really learning to to build structure into it, you know, with what you were just saying about when you were 18, it was really just more improvisational. And then what was the moment or kind of point in your career where you started to really feel like you'd started to learn to finesse that idea of longer form structure in comedy? I think it was just sort of like repetition, really, that you you recognize what made you you recognize the gigs that were really working and then you sort of try to emulate that and the great thing about stand-up it's it's the the whole kind of ten thousand hours theory couldn't be more true that you just you're just doing it over and over and over and you're doing it in pubs or the, you know I, i've done gigs in like alleys and laybys and i did a gig in a woods and i've done gigs in theaters and i've done gigs in arenas and all of it, it adds to this kind of um yeah, you've, I've learned how to fly in, in rain and sun and thunder and all these things. So it's that really that you just, you figure out what works and then you try and replicate it and then you change it. And then, then gigging abroad is so interesting because I did some shows in Lisbon recently and you go, okay, I noticed all these things before I went on stage and I was thinking, right, do I just do those which are all kind of rough and weird? Or do I do the show? And I was like, right, bollocks to it. I'll just do that stuff. And it made the gig so much better because I was so there and I was chatting about that they've got a folk music called Fardo and they, uh, they've they got such peculiar phrases for attraction. Um, like if they find a man, if they find a woman attractive, they say she's got too much sand in her truck, which to me as a comedian, I was just like, God, it's such a funny phrase of like, who describes a woman by going, bloody hell, she's got a lot of cement in her lorry. Um, so, but it's not perfect, but it was so right for that show. It's it's always that, that's what I, I think is a stand-up. There's a really great Dylan quote that you've got to be in a permanent state of becoming. And I think that's the great thing about stand-up. You don't have to do creativity through committee. You don't have to check stuff. You can sort of say, oh, I saw I saw this funny phrase from Portugal. I'll sling it in, you know, and if it works, it works and it gets better and then it disappears or you do it on a special. But every thought is auditioning to be in the show that night. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of that's what's exciting about it. I also like what you're saying there about those moments of recognizing when something is working and, and when you've done something really well, because you know, I've I've never met a creative that doesn't have some sense of of imposter syndrome at some point in their career. And that is very much a part of the relationship you have with yourself in the creative industry. But also it's important to allow yourself to kind of recognize your talents and your skills. And I've heard you talking about, you know, what it is that's made you successful. And yes, it's sweat and it's determination, but also you've acknowledged there's a natural talent that you have in this as well. And so what's the relationship that you have to allow yourself to have on the self-confidence side as much as you do with the other side of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of... Um, I don't know. It's it's because you have n- nights where you realize you know you can do this, 
and then you just have you it's always lurking this kind of fear of like oh god is this all rubbish and I, everyone has it every really good stand-up has those moments of like oh god is this crap oh it, it needs to get better but it's born out of this desire to give people the best show that you can give so it's kind of that's why I'm, I'm so envious of like novelists or like musicians because they have to create for themselves and I don't know a stand-up that enjoys that that every stand-up that I know likes thinking of things for others or writing a joke for others it's never enough for you to go oh I've written that I really enjoyed that I'll just put that away I won't share you know it, it's an art form that you have to make these things and then find people that you're desperate desperate to share it from so the fear is always overtaken by the desperation to kind of impress so that kind of that's the thing that gets you there it's that sort of childlike need to impress people you know and then god knows where that comes from you know but it it, it you, you either do you know what i mean you know when you you've you've got something and you just got to tell people it's yeah that's that's what stands up is really it's just that thing of like oh god it's ah you know and the excitement you feel when it when a new idea works is the best you know what i mean it's like you look at someone like seinfeld he's got you know so much money and he's got private jets but the only time he gets really excited is when he has a new idea and that speaks volumes i think that you know what i mean that that the true currency of stand up is like what's your new bit you know and, and to your point as well, you're you're writing for other people, but even though you're sitting in a room by yourself writing the material and working it out, it's still a collaboration. And in essence, you're writing with the audience because everything lives and dies by the audience. And, you know, I, I know that you kind of really finesse the material night by night. If you take something out and it doesn't work, that's not going to go in the show the next night. If you're playing a show somewhere where you really think someone, something's going to land specific to the location, you can kind of include it there, but maybe not once you move on somewhere else. Um, and so how do you feel that that relationship of collaboration, in essence, writing with the audience as a, as a live feedback has evolved over your career with the fact that you started out walking into rooms, convincing them to be on your side. And now you're in this really wonderful position of walking into rooms where the audience is already on your side before you even yeah. say your first word yeah well it, that's the really interesting point but you then have to you have to check it and really make sure it's good that's a really good point because you sort of particularly it doesn't really happen as much in america but in the uk you know if i'm doing a new material night people are suddenly get really excited and it makes it so much easier for me but the stuff still has to be good. Do you know what I mean? You get that kind of one minute of grace where they're very giddy, but ultimately it still has to be funny. And the way I do that is I just do new material gigs. There's a brilliant comedy club called Top Secret. And I'll just go there with a notepad and I just try stuff out and um, gradually work it up before I then charge people money. That's my thing. It's like, you ha I have to get it to a certain level before I feel like, okay, I can put this on sale and do some shows. Do you feel like even with the new material shows that you do when you're workshopping at places like that, that, that that has kind of felt a little bit different as your career has become more successful because yeah. again, there's just more of an immediate recognition and idea of what people think the night's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's, I don't know. You, you just have to be like super grateful that you have that 
bit like, do you know what I mean? It's like, because that's what you've spent your whole kind of career getting to a stage where you walk on stage, you go, hello. And everyone goes, hey. And I think with that trust, you're lucky because you can go a little bit deeper or you can go a bit further and they won't get uh, nervous. They'll kind of follow you down a path or whatever, you know. And then sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know. I remember doing a bit at Top Secret where I was chatting about, I got offered money to tweet happy birthday to Heathrow Airport. And I just thought it was so funny, this idea. Um, But I just couldn't get beyond the point that the crowd were like, they couldn't understand why I didn't take the money. And I couldn't understand why they didn't think I shouldn't have taken the money. And you know what I mean? So it just, it just didn't work. But the point is they trusted me to be able to talk about money, which is like the most vulgar conversation you can have. Do you know what I mean? It's like that that's the one area when you're chatting about kind of like, because I, I got offered, I think it was something like 10 grand, it was a lot of money just to say happy birthday to an airport. But I'm very fortunate that I don't need 10 grand to say happy birthday to an airport. But the audience were like, are you fucking mad? Like, and so it was so funny to me. And it was, but you you sort of realize you go, okay, that, that, that doesn't work. But they didn't look at me like I was like this rich prick. They trusted that I could just tell that story and it didn't work. Do you know what I mean? And, and also obviously, you know, you're you're constantly touring internationally at, at this point in your career and there's there's such a difference between coming and playing gigs for you in the states at this point I imagine where you know when when you grow up in England there's such an immersion in American culture already and then having played here several times to say the first time that you performed in India in kind of really having a sense before you walk into the room of what are the the cultural intricacies of how I need to word something or do I need to describe this because this isn't a cultural reference or touch point that the audience already has and so what's the difference in finessing that in another place where you have a sense of familiarity of what might work and what might not in terms of adapting the material versus when you're going to a country for the first time to try out material I I think when you're doing a country for the first time the best thing is to try and talk about them as much as possible because that's your halfway house do you know what I mean? That you that that you can meet them, and I remember in India they have, like, when you drive in, there's like loads of people in uh, uh, on motorbikes, like mopeds, like couples, like young couples that are kind of kissing on mopeds. And the guy that was driving, I, I said, Jesus, a lot of people like on motorways kissing, and he was saying because a lot of them live in multi generational houses. When you kind of want to go meet your girlfriend, you got to drive out to a motorway park on the side of the motorway and then that's where you kind of kiss and i was just like that's really funny and then i just remember chatting about how difficult how nerve-wracking it is to lose your virginity anyway but imagine doing it on a motorway and and you know mumbai traffic moves slowly <laughs> so it's kind of the, the so it's like this really funny bit that that nobody had noticed and then as the outsider, I was able to see it. And that it was like this kind of lovely icebreaker rather than kind of going on stage in Mumbai and going. So the thing about me, you know, that, that that's the, the main difference. I think when you're in a different culture, it's it always helps to get there for a like a day or two beforehand and just sort of just try and immerse yourself and just feel how you 
sit in it and it then it it just becomes a, a more natural way of saying hello do you know what i mean of like and the great thing about traveling that we all have this that our sort of for whatever reason our powers of observation are, are so heightened because we notice things that we wouldn't notice about our everyday life you just i walk through london there's probably so many things that are hilarious but they're so normal and usual to me that I'm not able to see them. And sometimes traveling makes you realize how I remember talking about um, lollipop men in uh, New York. And it wasn't until I did that, that I realized how absurd it is that a lollipop man in the UK, when we need to get kids across a busy road, we give an old man a giant lollipop. And this guy in the crowd went, why? And I didn't have an answer for him. And it was, it just struck me how funny it is. Why, why are we giving old men lollipop? You know, but I must have seen lollipop men a thousand times and never once gone, that's a bit weird. But it, do you know what I mean? It took going to a foreign country and just being a bit loose to sort of like find this bit of comedy that had always been in front of my nose, you know? And and there's that idea of of travel and meeting people and and things that you're learning about on the uplifting side, and then you're also constantly interweaving things that are a little bit darker or a little bit more harrowing in life and and kind of figuring out how to put that into the material. I was interested in in kind of that process and journey, kind of using the example of you'd been traveling and you'd met a group of people who made coffins and also made coffins for children. And when asked why, the answer was so that nobody else has to and and yeah. kind of we hope that nobody has to has to see this and to see this room of this. And, mm. you know, a year or so ago when you were on Diary of a CEO, you were talking about that story and the idea that that wasn't in any of your shows yet, but it would be. And then I remember seeing you in London earlier this year and that being part of the material. So when mm. you have pieces like that, how do you figure out how to finesse that into the show that really makes sense with the rest of the context and, and other tones around it where it makes sense? Just the blend. I think you, you sort of naturally feel the blend and it gets better the further the tour goes because you realize some bits are sort of extraneous. It's like a sculpture, isn't it? You're just kind of, you're just lopping bits off so that it's just a bit more, um, it's a bit neater. But particularly with that story, it just felt like it, it was so it's one of those stories that it's so it it just it resonates so deeply with everybody because you you don't have you don't struggle to tell the story do you know what I mean like I could say that in front of my friends on a stag do or I could say it to my mum it's so god I met this lady that made coffins for babies and she was oh she just said the most beautiful thing and everyone wants to hear that do you know what I mean like, it, it's so like sort of uplifting and sort of ephemeral and it's so kind and just placing that in a show it makes the the rest of the show a bit richer because there are those little kind of diamonds sort of hopefully the perfect kind of hour has though for me anyway it has those little diamonds and nuggets of of like or of wonder sort of linked with the the horror of the world so they're almost like this kind of like shining light of what we actually are and what we're capable of and the sort of truth and beauty of humanity that was the point of that story when you sort of juxtapose that with 
people complaining about um, who's advertising Bud Light or what we can and can't say in Roald Dahl's books or the Tory government using uh, people on boats to try and ignore the fact that Liz Truss cost us 33 billion. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it acted as this kind of um, sort of the, the, the final point of magnificence uh, set against the backdrop of the show. Do you know what I mean? So I sort of just knew you you can't really open with something like that because it's just too, whoa, or I can't anyway. I, I kind of like get all the funny and then kind of drift into sort of stuff that means the most to you. And the great thing is over an hour and a half, you can drop those things in, in a way that if you were doing like a 20 minute set in a club, you've just got to keep tapping away. You can't really um, spend time to kind of tell a slow story, you know? And and I think also that moments like that in your shows also kind of speak to some of the evolution in terms of just the the pacing where you know you've you've spoken in the past about how early on in your career it was very much like it needed to be like joke punchline 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 and and now it's kind of this really interesting flow between different tones and different moments and pacing and with your relationship with getting more comfortable with moments of silence that's such a great example because you don't want the audience sitting there laughing out loud in a moment like that you want to allow them to kind of sit back and take a little bit of a breath and so how has the relationship that you've built in terms of finding more comfort with slower paces within your show and just allowing the audience to have certain moments of silence also in turn kind of really evolved the way that you're able to flow material between those different spaces. How has it changed? I don't know. It's sort of, again, it's sort of like, it's just the 10,000 hours that you kind of, mm-hmm. you, you just build up various blocks and you, you go to little comedy clubs and you try bits out and then you have a longer story and you try that out and then you sort of just blend it together and you get it wrong. It's probably a bit like making a cocktail, you know what I mean? Where you're just putting in, you know, a bit of right, bit of rum, bit of vodka, bit of, oh, no, that's too much. Okay. Okay. Right. Let's put, a, what, what should we put? we'll put some whiskey in. Should we put an egg in? Oh, it kind of works. Okay. You know, and it's, it's sort of that really, that's kind of what comedy is. And then, once you've created all your cocktails, you've got to try and create like a like a taster menu, and you've got a kind of right. Okay, I'll start them with that, and then I'll put that, and then I'll, and then we'll head into the we'll get them a nice Malbec. We'll have a red wine there, and then we'll you know, and that's so you not only do you, you have to find the ingredients, make the cocktail, and then <laughs> sort of serve them in the right order so that it kind of ends with the champagne and so. Yeah, that's that's really all it is, and it's just trial and error. That 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 I imagine it's the same for for music, where you're just you, you you're just sort of sat there with the lyrics or the the kind of beats or the chords or whatever it may be, and you kind of go, "Is it that? Does it come this way?" It's just trial and error. It's just go, "Okay, cool." So I'll open with that. That feels fun. Okay, fine. And then I'll go there. Oh, that doesn't work. Right. Okay, I'll change it. But I guess the difference is that. I always have this audience. That's why I always say it's created with, not for, because the crowd through laughter and uh, interest help you figure out, okay, this is, this is boring. Okay. I need to put something in there or actually that silence is really important. I shouldn't put something in there that, that kind of cheapens the silence. 
because that's the scary thing about silence as a comedian. It, 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 like you say, with imposter syndrome, whenever you hear silence, all you hear is they hate me, they hate me, they hate me, they hate me. And the further you get into it, you realize actually that silence means, oh my God, I'm really, oh, fuck, that, that they're engaged. But but it took me years to find that. And actually what really helped was I went to Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival and I watched a load of shows and I hadn't been in an audience properly for a long time. And it just reminded me of what it's like to be in an audience. And those moments when we were genuinely emotionally attached to a story or a joke or something, you realize, wow, that's really powerful. Like that it really felt important and but you would never have the arrogance to assume that when you're on stage you go well they're probably emotionally engaged in this silence you know what i mean because your brain just goes they hate me they hate me they hate me um so it took watching and being an audience member to be reminded that you don't have to just shout at people for an hour and and with the fact that material is such a, a living breathing entity within stand-up as you were saying is it something where, with what you were talking about in terms of just having that sense of of the structure, where it's it's more about finessing just the individual joke and moment, or are there moments where you're essentially restructuring elements of a show and going, okay, before I go into this segment about the atrocities of the war in the Ukraine, actually I'm going to move this segment about my mom pulling out a hula hoop every time the news is sad, because yeah. it needs a little bit more of an uplift in order for the audience to really kind of sit in the moment afterwards. Yeah, but again, it's sort of that there's because the the audience have no idea how much they help, but they they let you know, okay, actually, no, I don't need that, or I do need this, and it's sort of sometimes it's it's about moving stuff around, sometimes it's about getting rid of stuff, sometimes it's about completely rewriting a joke, you know, but you just gradually f- feel it somehow. It's kind of it's honestly, it's such a great art form for that because you can kind of, I don't know, you could just, you can, you just feel it sometimes when you're making them laugh and you've got them on a roll and you're like, okay, and I pop that in. And then I'm really lucky. I have a tour manager, the mighty Kumar Kamlagaran, and he'll just watch so many shows. So he can really feel as well as when we're particularly working shows up and previewing. He's like, oh, it was really good tonight. That bit was really so that we can have a conversation and a debrief. And my agent's the same that you can sort of, he'll come and watch a show and he'll kind of make notes. And sort of then we have a chat about that. So I have like trusted kind of people that you can bounce off because I have all this kind of like sort of experience on stage. And sometimes just having somebody step back and go, God, that bit's really great. And like, really? I thought, he goes, yeah, yeah, you just you just didn't do it right. But if you do it like that, you're like, oh yeah, that's good. Do you know what I mean? So it's so it's it's collaborative afterwards. It's collaborative with the audience when you're doing it, but then it's kind of collaborative afterwards, where particularly other comics, we all love talking about our stuff. So I've got a bunch of my friends and I'll sort of chat about I've got this idea, and then they'll chat about their idea and we all kind of help each other along, you know. 
Um, and lastly, this, this is this is very different to kind of the, the rest of the conversation that we've been having. But I want to talk a little bit about when you were on Taskmaster a few years ago, because it's such a fantastic show. And obviously, when you watch the episodes, you see kind of like the segmented tasks. But the tasks are filmed so close together where you're really kind of there for a full day. You're doing multiple things. And yeah. I was actually really interested in just the experience of going through all those tasks, because it's really a show that asks you to think out of, outside of the box in a non-lateral way, in a very specific way to the show. And mm. I was interested in kind of how the more tasks you were doing for the show, the more it kind of shifted the way that you were approaching and thinking about things when you when you filmed. Yeah, what's odd about it is that you do it for a week. So you spend a week literally in this house and it's like you'll do like a nine to five where... You, they have you <laughs> just doing these really bizarre things and then you go back to your life and you go to sleep and it's it's like this kind of week-long assessment of your mind it's the weirdest experience because you, you but and because you do so many tasks you can't fake who you are do you know what I mean like because you're it's so immediate you sort of learn that you're super competitive or you get very angry with yourself you, you know or you're very um like impulsive but th th that's what i learned i'm not a uh my first thought I'll, like that's what i was like right bang i'll do that like that was always kind of how i went and then uh and then it would go badly and then i would try and fix it um but yeah, I, I really loved it. It's such a fun show. But it's it's when you watch it back as well, it's like, you know, just watching yourself when you've been tortured and just seeing how you've behaved under duress. It's so strange. And because I'm really good mates with Greg as well. He's like a genuine mate of mine. He came to my wedding. Just there were so, so many moments in the recording where he was just looking at me going, mate, what is wrong with you? And you're like, I don't know. I, I love that. Well, it's it's been so fascinating to hear so many details of of just the process that goes into your shows. Um, they're so fantastic, and hopefully, people will come check you out on the rest of your US tour. And thank you so much, Russell. Really appreciate it. Lovely to see you, mate. Take care. See you later.